This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store. Like now, go. Hello and welcome to episode 226 of What Most People Think and I am back from a mini Scottish odyssey at the back end of last week. Thank you very much to everybody that came to shows in Aberdeen, Glasgow, which just never feel more English than when I'm saying Glasgow and Dundee. All the Scottish people I met really screwed their faces up when I said I was going to Dundee. And it was lovely. People, they were really nice. The only thing that happened was on the way back to the airport, and I want to put that in, in inverted commas, someone said to me, oh, yeah, get to the airport early. You'll be able to do some uh, Christmas shopping. Now, that's obviously a running joke in Dundee because the airport, well, basically, I think the woman that serves coffee also checks you in and actually flies the plane. And this week, co-hosting on this show, I've got Constantine kissing back. Welcome back, mate. Good to be back. Smallest airport you've ever been in. It's an experience you remember, isn't it, when you go to a dinky one? Well, when I first came to the UK, it would have been the mid-90s or 95, 96. And believe it or not, I used to fly into Bristol Airport and they wouldn't even check your passports. That's how small it was. So that's how I got in. It's the story of my journey to the UK, mate. It was the 90s, dude. It was yeah. the 90s. You know, immigration was in the tens of thousands. Nobody cared because it was just like, there's only a few of you. Come on in. We need you. The policy back then was more the merrier. Somewhat changed since. <laughs> Put that on the side of a bus. Do people still say that? I think they do. One thing that did happen, actually, Constantine, was uh, is that I, I've been on the road a bit and I got a bit of the tour lurgy. I was revived by a really good pasta dish at Tony Macaroni. But going in there, I just felt really rough. At one point, I thought I was going to pass out. And I just thought there was something really embarrassing about passing out at a Tony Macaroni. But you were saved by a dish. Mate, you know what? Everyone I know has been ill for like weeks. I've had this cough for like six weeks now that just like pops up anytime I have to do any work. If I'm lying on the sofa, everything is absolutely fine. And this isn't just a story I made up to tell my wife. If I'm lying on the sofa, everything's fine. Well, I mean, it's interesting you mention that because you have been. You're so in demand now. You did another Joe Rogan. I mean, I'm sure our listeners would love to know what that experience is like. I mean, he would laugh at us right now because he does three, two and a half hour records a fucking week. Jesus. Our first one we did was four and a half hours. This one was three and a half hours. So he just goes in, but he's like this super curious guy that he just is interested in so many different things. He has a lot to say himself. The people he often invites are really interesting people as well. So it's always fun. And then afterwards, you go and hang out at the Mothership, which is like the best comedy club I've ever been in. So much fun. Hang out in the green room. It's always full of really interesting people. And yeah, he had the funniest joke that I've heard for a long time in the set. He went, we lost a lot of people during COVID. 
most of them are still alive. <laughs> that's great so what is the mothership then is it what is it sort of comedy unleashed type vibes where people who are encouraged to sort of push the limits i don't know if they're encouraged to push the limits but it's just that there are no limits so you basically say whatever the hell you want and i said this last time and i got a lot of flack for it but it is true most of the material that people do in there would get you arrested in the uk and i'm not exaggerating if you did that at the edinburgh fringe there would be coppers at the door when you were done with the show but it's texas man so they have a very different attitude over there to all sorts of things you know the more i go to america the more i realize you ever heard that saying about how we're two countries divided by a common language yeah it's so true because we think we understand america we think we're quite similar because we speak the same language and like there is probably more difference between the the americans and the british than there is between the british and the french in many ways it's just a completely different culture and when it comes to speech freedom of expression all of this stuff they're wild especially in the south especially in texas so it's always fun to go and get a different perspective I suppose there is that thing that the further you are away from the seat of power, so there's Washington, and then you could be thousands of miles away. The concept, does it come down to geography where you kind of go, all right, the people that tell me what to do in my case are like 50 miles away, right? That makes a sort of perverse sense. But if you got some goddamn senator 2,000 miles away telling me... (laughs) I can't do racist jokes, fuck. Well, yeah. And uh, I mean, if you actually look at how the United States was formed, it was formed basically of 13 essentially countries. It's a federal system. I always say this, like America isn't a country. It's 50 countries that decided to come together. And Mm. like I went to Utah, which is where all the Mormons are. And then you take a three hour flight to LA. Everything is different. Food, culture, Mm. weather, people's attitudes, people's religious attitudes. It's just a completely different species of human being because they live different lives. And so the United States really isn't one country. It's a bunch of different states that came together to be under one umbrella, but they're so, so different. And it it doesn't have to be as far as Texas. I mean, you go to Washington, D.C., where I think the last election, like 90% of people voted for the Democrats. And all you have to do is drive out into West Virginia, which is an hour's drive, which is like gun country. It's the exact opposite culture in every single way. It's just a bunch of farmers living on the land, basically. They don't have the same values as the people, you know, having avocado toast somewhere in Georgetown. I love going to America for that reason. It's just so interesting and so culturally diverse. That word diverse, mate. Diversity is their strength. It's all we have. There was a tweet by the FA recently that said, without diversity, we're nothing. I thought, this is what sets people against the idea. So you can say like diversity is good, constructive in certain ways. But saying without diversity, we're nothing. I think it just pisses people off. And I think maybe our version of that level of diversity geographically is the M62 corridor. Because for some reason, you can drive 10 miles, every new junction, there's a fucking different accent. Yeah. It's the weirdest part of Britain. And I suppose that's where we, maybe we have a sort of geographical diversity, but it's based on, it's based on service stations, isn't it? Like every time I stop, I notice like the further north I go, the more term of endearments that I get. You know, the London ones are like, oh yeah, cheers. Yeah, all right, Babs, you're right. And then you get to the ones up north, and I'm like, look, I don't want to talk to you about my family. I just want to fucking Greg's. 
So this is what most people think. Uh, this is the comedy show, politics and topical stuff that has, you know, guests and discussions which are slightly outside of the comedic norm. Hence, we've got a guest today that's been on Joe Rogan, which, believe me, in, in my industry, that can be controversial in and of itself. Oh, is that right? Because, see, I'm so out of the industry now that, like, I don't even know what's controversial anymore. Well, the first time that you went on, I remember there was a few people that got bent out of shape. But the thing with comedy is there's always got to be someone that does something the first time. By the time you do it the second time, they're on to worrying about something else. But today we are going to be talking about a broad range of subjects because I, I want to pick Constantine's brain on a few things. I want to just get his take on Rishi, really. I'm calling him Barbie Rishi because he's got so many different outfits and costume changes. Or maybe Brittany Rishi, perhaps. Diana Ross Rishi. He just keeps on putting on a new political outfit. So I want to pick your brain about him. There was something over the weekend which maybe people who aren't, uh, you know, as online might have missed was there was this sort of trend of TikTokers in the US, a lot of broadly speaking younger uh, Americans who'd found Bin Laden's letter to America and were like, hey, but wait, he was onto something. Believe it or not, there was a lot of empathy and understanding of fucking Bin Laden. I guess we shouldn't be surprised, Constantine, in a week where David Cameron made a return. <laughs> the fact that Bin Laden got rehabilitated, uh, it, I suppose it wasn't that beyond the pale. And for the Patreon only, I got some of my board member patrons to message in questions for Constantine, so uh, you can look forward to that. Just quickly, new Patreon. If you're a patron, go to Patreon, find the name of the podcast, and you get the show early, ad-free, and with bonus content. And we got a few new patrons here getting their shout out we got a guy called steve geel that's j-e-a-l geel that's an unusual surname isn't it yeah that is it sounds like eel with a with a j but i don't know what that's about steve geel it's quite a cool name isn't it? he sounds like he might be the bassist in like a ska band like you know those old guys that are still at it Steve Geo and the, and the Skiffle Monsters. But welcome, Steve. That is a really unusual surname. And then we've got Simon Prescott. Simon Prescott did all of his name in capitals, which I think is a very Simon Prescott type thing to do. That's a gammony thing to do. Mate, you've got the most gammon audience. Like we on Trigonometry get accused of courting the gammony audience. It's just, that is not at all. You are King Gammon. No, hang on. You haven't got a Steve Geo though. Steve Geo. Slapping the bass. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. When people come to my tour shows, they are sort of expecting pure gammon, you know, like pure unadulterated, like the best cuts, dry smoked. <laughs> and then my audience is like slightly older than the, the touring crowd. But then the one in Dundee, mate, I was like, fucking hell. Either Dundee, like just all the, well, I guess with the, the mortality rates in Scotland, maybe it just skews younger generally. Oh, I'll get letters for that. I'll get letters. It was cheap. It was cheap. It was a cheap joke about life expectancy in Scotland, but it was there to be hit. We've got Colin Wiseman, Professor Colin Wiseman. He sounds like the kind of guy that crops up, you know, when there's an, a fiscal event and we are around the anniversary of Liz Truss's fiscal event. Uh, that was only last year. Jesus Christ. A lot has happened since then. But yeah, Colin Wiseman will be giving his five minutes analysis on the autumn statement later. I look forward to that. And then just Don. And there's nothing I can do with that. Don, I'm hoping it's because he's an AFC Wimbledon fan. He might just be mafia. This might be hush money. Maybe I shouldn't even be saying his name. The main talking point. So last week we spoke about, I don't know if you've seen this, Constantine, but at the Cenotaph now, the sort of living prime ministers there, there's quite a lot of them now. And... David says that that is the most that there's ever been, well, certainly in recent history. The time when there was the fewest surviving prime ministers alive was 2006, when it was just Thatcher and John Major. Yeah, there's a lot of them, but we keep changing them, so there'll be more over time. I mean, I don't see Starmer gets elected. I don't know if he's going to make it through the next parliament. 
unreplaced either. So I think it's going to carry on and just shows you the kind of chaotic state the country is in. Maybe it's like Batman. It's like, you know, when we were kids, like it was just Michael Keaton, Christian Bale for quite a while. And it, like, but then suddenly there were just shitloads of Batmans and Spider-Mans as well. Maybe this is the problem. We are existing in the age of the multiverse. That's right. The age of the endless sequel. <laughs> yeah. I was saying the other day, like, you know, um, I don't know if you've ever seen Doctor Strange, but you know, he does that weird thing with his hand where he opens up a circle and just brings in characters from other worlds. I think that that was what Rishi basically did when he brought back Cameron was he opened up the political multiverse. That was incredible. Did you even think things like that were possible? We're almost starting to go back to like the period, you know, decades ago where you could like be prime minister and then make a comeback and you could be prime minister again, potentially. Like that's what used to happen. It's not something you really conceive of now because I just think, particularly in the age of social media, if you're in power for more than about three seconds, and even if you are like Liz Trust there for about three seconds, you get so much shit attached to you from that period that it's almost impossible to ever make a comeback of any kind. Like every time I see Tony Blair now, I just go, just look. Looking at him makes me go shudder a little bit. So I'm quite surprised that he's made a comeback. Well, they're all knocking about in a way, aren't they? Alistair Campbell is, um, didn't his podcast play the Royal Albert Hall? I mean, I think, what's that podcast called? The Rest is Politics. Well, let's not advertise it, mate. Jesus well, the, the thing. <laughs> But the thing is, is that it doesn't even make sense. The rest is politics doesn't make sense as a title. The rest is history is a phrase. And now they've got a whole series of podcasts called The Rest is Politics. The rest is economics. The rest is the history of fucking Top of the Pops. No, but it is incredible that Alistair Campbell has reinvented himself as like the moral conscience of the nation. Like he's popping up everywhere, like giving his opinion about the immoral Tories. And I'm going, mate. Not you, anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. Please go for them. I don't like the Tories either, but you should be in a monastery for the rest of your life, just fucking praying. <laughs> Didn't he get caught out because he, and I think rightly criticised the Green Party. So the Green Party published a list of all the MPs that had voted against the ceasefire, which as we know, Constantine, if there had been a ceasefire amendment, obviously it would have happened straight away. So <laughs> obviously, as Jeremy Corbyn said, that those people, I mean, this did fuck me off. Jeremy Corbyn said that they were cheering on war. I hate that shit. Like you can kind of go, right, I understand your argument for a ceasefire, but I also understand the pragmatism of humanitarian pauses. When people like Corbyn, come out and say that that is cheering on war. That is fucking wildly irresponsible. And then so Alistair Campbell, I think he rightly called out the Green Party for sharing those names. And then it was pointed out that Alistair Campbell during the Brexit years repeatedly published lists of MPs that had voted against things that he wanted. He went more than that. He went further than that. He said, I think it was on Twitter, find the addresses of the MPs who voted in this way. Like this is about conservatives a while back. Yeah. And let them know how you feel. Yeah, let them know. Look, if you have a shit and it ends up in a bag and it goes through their letterbox, all I'm saying is shit happens. What most people think. The thank you. So I mentioned it on um, Sunday's International Men's Day podcast with the Man Whisperer, which if you missed that, well worth a listen. It's a shorter one, but uh, there's some really good advice there around men's mental health. And I mean, the thing with International Men's Day, Constantine, is I think the problem is I think a lot of blows go... Men's issues should get more attention, you know, suicide, homelessness, all that sort of stuff. The moment you say to a bloke, celebrate yourself, that's the thing that we have an issue with. It's not natural, mate. Just raise each other up. You're like, but it's so much funnier to tear each other down. Yeah, we're not women, though, are we? I mean, that's kind of the point, right? Like, why would we be raising each other up? That's what women do. We're in competition. There was an article that I wrote for The Spectator on Sunday, which I also said is like, one of the funny things about the idea of the patriarchy 
is this idea that men are waking up thinking, how can we all kind of like make out? Like, do you realize how much pleasure men take of outperforming their peers? This idea that we're all on this WhatsApp group trying to fucking, you know, ensure that we all get a piece of the action. I'm, I'm not sure it's accurate. I mean, the funniest thing in the world is seeing your mate get hit in the bollocks. That tells you everything you need to know about the patriarchy. So Sunday's episode, I mentioned on Sunday that the charity gig had sold out already. So thanks so much for people that bought tickets to that. Very excited about that. Um, Since I first put it out there, one of our own, Constantine Simon Evans, has been added to the bill. Romish has said he's going to do the gig and also pub landlord Al Murray. So it's ridiculously high standard. Oh, fantastic. That's a great lineup. Mate, it's like a fucking festival lineup. I mean, the one thing people have said to me is like, can we live stream the gig? I think realistically with eight acts, it won't be the acts that will be against it. But as you know, with rights issues and stuff like that, live streaming might not be possible. And also Jeff wants you to buy tickets, so... That's mainly what's going on there. Well, we're sold out. I, well, I'm just going to ask people to give money. We might do like a 10-minute highlight clip, which I can then clear with the acts, and that might make a lot more sense. So thank you very much to everyone that bought tickets for that. And the fuck you this week comes from Constantine. My fuck you has actually come up in the last hour where this Javier Millet guy has been elected president of Argentina. And he's this like libertarian that basically, I mean, he's he's very funny. He just goes on TV and just slags off everyone, says he's going to cancel all the departments of government, etc. Hmm. But everyone that I'm looking at on my Twitter feed may say a lot about my Twitter feed. He's just banging on about this guy. Everyone's become an Argentine politics expert. So my fuck you is to the Argentine politics expert. Like we, we've had enough of experts, especially these ones, to quote Michael Gove. So, yeah, he's got crazy hair, which I think is... He's got Argentinian hair. I mean, yeah, you say crazy hair. I think that it wouldn't be that crazy to him or his family. You know, I've seen like... He looks like a sort of manager of a struggling Argentinian premiership team. He does look a bit batshit, but I don't know if he is like how far right he is. If I went on the hair, I'd say fairly far right. Because if you look at big kind of strongman international figures, they go big on the hair, don't they? They're authoritarians. Yeah, I think he's the opposite of that. He's a more like a libertarian. He wants to reduce the size of the state or whatever. At least that's what he says. Now that he's in power, we'll actually find out. Well, let's see. Yeah, they all say that. Reduce the size of the state, increase the size of his hair. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, we're going to crack on now. We're going to talk about the politics and I'm going to pick Constantine's considerable political brain about Rishi Sunak. Right, so last week was a big week for Rishi in a lot of ways. It started with the sacking of Suella. He brought back Cameron. He had the Rwanda deal squashed in the courts. It was really busy, actually, when you look back on it. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism that he'd gone from saying that he was the change candidate to the continuity guy. And I just noticed, Constantine, that you seemed particularly annoyed with Rishi Sunak last week. So I just wanted to find out where you stand on him now. So Because I guess after a year and after several reinventions, we've got a sense of him. But do we know what he stands for yet in any respect? 
No, we don't. And that's why I got annoyed with him is one of the reasons. But look, the main reason is if you look at what the Conservative Party is promising and has been promising the entire time it's been in government, basically, it's it's made a lot of really key pledges around issues like immigration and illegal immigration in particular. And they're not doing any of that. And what I saw with him getting rid of Suela, and particularly, I don't know if you read her resignation letter, but it's sort of, mm. it was absolutely brutal. And it revealed a lot of things that I think most people suspected about the conservative government, which is the reason they're not dealing with illegal immigration and the reason they're not you know, as you know, you voted for Brexit and I didn't. But one of the promises of Brexit was that this country would be able to control its own borders. And the argument goes is the reason it's not happening is A, that the civil service is putting spikes in the wheels of that idea. But also, it's that the actual people at the top of the conservative government are not trying to deal with it. And so I felt that Sirla Braverman was the one person that was actually attempting to deliver on the things that the Conservative Party had promised the country in 2019. And so for him to get rid of her and then for us to find out that essentially he's been stalling the attempt to deal with those issues, which then manifested themselves in quite predictably the Supreme Court rejecting the Rwanda deal, which we knew would have happened a year ago. That just shows you that basically he's been attempting to give lip service to all of these conversations without actually doing anything. And I think particularly by getting rid of Suella and replacing her with David Cameron, we're sort of back to this kind of technocratic, centrist form of government, which I don't think is apt in the current moment. It may be a good way of managing things when everything's kind of going hunky-dory. But I think right now, on all sorts of issues, including, like I say, immigration, legal immigration, you need drastic action. You need radical action. And he seems to be an obstacle in the way of that. And what will happen, I think, as a result is the Tories are going to get absolutely crushed at the next election and you're going to get four or five years of Labour. I didn't quite get to it on last week's podcast, but do you think that like James Cleverly seems like a guy that realises that this isn't going to get through, you know? He's a sort of realist. Do you think that there's an element with the Rwanda thing that they know it's not going to happen now, but it's kind of like just tie it up in the courts, get to the next election, pass it over to Labour, who will get rid of it probably, and it's almost like a sort of choreographed tango, really, isn't it? It's like, you know, like they're just keeping the ball down in the corner flag. You know, like when football teams try and run out the clock. The problem with this running out the clock is they're doing that while they're 4-0 down. Exactly. Oh, my God. They're like a football team that are 4-0 down. They're doing loads of substitutions. <laughs> they keep changing the, the formation. I mean, you know, is, is some of this laying traps for Labour now? Are they realistic enough to know that they can't win? So they'll just pass on some stuff that Labour will either have to vote down, whether it's tax cuts or some stuff that they'll have to abolish, which is immigration, which will help their narrative in the early years of a Labour government. Yeah, well, we'll see. I think the only hope I have for this country is Labour ruined things so much over the next five years that like an actually sensible party emerges, whether that's a Conservative Party or not, I actually don't know at this point, in response and starts to address the concerns of the public. I mean, I have to say, I'm really, really not optimistic about where we are at the moment. I think with the level of debt, the size of the deficit, so that's the rate at which the debt is increasing and just the disillusionment that most people rightly feel as well with the political system. I just don't think it's a healthy moment. 
Yeah, and there's not really, I mean, because when I talk on the tour, I say, you know, obviously people are very angry with the government, people are very apathetic about Labour, and then I say, is anyone planning to vote Lib Dem? And there's usually silence. Now, if there's any Lib Dems listening, don't get pissed off. There isn't. There isn't. (laughs) (laughs) They're just happy to get mentioned, Constantine. It's really weird. When you slag them off, like you see them, there was one at Maidenhead. And she was so delighted because they were in the conversation. You think it is quite astonishing to have a moment where the two parties are so discredited, right? And also with Labour, people talk about the reinvention under Starmer. To what, right? We don't know. All he's done is he's had some fairly effective internal party management up till last week. That is not like a policy direction. And, you know, they were constructively ambiguous over Brexit. They stood on the fence over COVID. There's been actually quite a long time where people didn't really know what Labour stood for. Well, they've played a blinder by doing that, haven't they? By just letting the Conservatives destroy themselves, saying nothing. And by the way, mate, up until about 2019, actually, I was a lifelong lived Dem voter. A lifelong lived Dem. That's rare. In my defence, mate, at that time, they were actually liberal and democratic, both of which they abandoned over Brexit or during the Brexit period. But yeah, I think you should get some sort of sticker for lifelong Lib Dem. I think it's so rare. I mean, one of the problems, and I didn't expect this to become about the Lib Dems, but I can see why this conversation has gone this way, because we're talking about disillusionment with the two main parties. You go, well, what's the third option? We don't really know what it is because the Lib Dems will tend to campaign in areas based on what the areas tell them. So they don't have a national platform. So they'll say, right, we, we are we are pro-building houses. And then the people go, we don't want that. And they'll go, that's what I said. I said, we're anti-building houses. That's what I was, I was telling them the other day. No one knows what Ed Davey even fucking sounds like. Or looks like, or who he is. He's a sir, though, isn't he? Uh, probably. Yeah. See, this is the thing. is like we, we are political anoraks and we even we don't know, right? The interesting thing might be if there is some kind of third party or a challenge, it might be more from the right. It might be like, mm. I mean, reform isn't probably it, but it's a kind of like Suella Braverman, Nigel Farage kind of combo mm. party. <laughs> that was an incredible phrase, by the way. A Suella Braverman, Nigel Farage combo party. That... Wow. I had images, Constantine. Well, I'm desperate at this point. I'll settle for anything. Uh, Nigel Farage, Ella Braverman combo party is the best <laughs> we're going to get. But but it might be something like that where you have a broad coalition of people in the centre and centre-right who see the Conservative Party as a essentially a liberal party that's not going to deliver on any of the commitments they actually have. And that is probably the one hope of, of some kind of national revival, I think, for this country at this point. I think a Suella Braverman, Nigel Farage combo party, I've realised what it summed up in my mind. Was, you know those terrible adverts on Iceland? It would be like a combo party where it'd have different foods and it would be really like culturally insensitive. It would be like <laughs> Farage would go, I'm having some good old-fashioned pigs in blankets and Suella would just play to sort of like the Asian cuisine side of it. It would be the it be the the Iceland Christmas right wing combo party. So I think that like the lefties that listen to this will get really annoyed because we started off about Rishi. But the point is, there's nothing more to say, really, isn't it? The guy's thrashed around. He's had several different outfits within a short space of time. So inevitably, I think we start looking to the potential alternatives in the medium term. So, you know, I think that that rebellion for Starmer was a real, you know, like in, 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 a, in a drama, like a box set, something will happen. You go, well, that's weird. It didn't relate to any of the plots. But you go, no, nah, that's for season four. Right. So when they start season four, they'll show you that rebellion again. I've got this idea, Constantine, as a betting man, 
If I could put a bet on this, this is what I'd do. I'd say Labour win a majority of around 80 to 100 seats, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe more, maybe 120, okay? The Labour Party think, fuck, we've got a massive majority. We should do really, really left-wing stuff. They keep voting him down. They think this guy's not going to do it. They think if we're going to get rid of him, do it two years into a five-year parliament because the public will have forgotten by the time we get to the next election. So my bet is that Keir Starmer out of a job within two years of Labour getting in. What do you reckon? Well, this is what I was saying. I don't know that he's going to last the five years because you can play the tactic that he's been playing, which is say nothing, do nothing, and just let the other side you know, score on goals over and over and over. And he's been great at that. But when you've got the ball, you're going to have to do something with it. And once that starts to happen, you're going to see the the coalition that they have in the Labour Party fragment pretty quickly, I think. But, you know, just not to annoy your lefty audience even more, but, you know, this idea that Suella Braverman was some sort of hard right, far right politician is complete nonsense. I mean, all she's saying is stuff that used to be Like when I came to this country in 1996, like 3% of the British public thought immigration was a major issue because it wasn't really a major issue. But back then, everybody agreed, and this is true of American politics as well, that a country has to have a border. It has to choose who comes in, on what terms. They have to be qualified. They have to demonstrate that they're going to earn over a certain amount. These things were quite, I mean, not quite, they were uncontroversial at the time. So I just think we've got to a place where like very mainstream ideas are being labeled as like hard right and far right. And I think that's why lefty people sometimes just go off the deep end when we talk about these issues. I don't think it's a hard right or even a particularly right wing thing to actually think, you know, immigration should be controlled to a certain level. And I say that as a first generation immigrant myself, it's what a lot of immigrants feel. I think you're right. I think that there'll be a lot of consensus with, with some of the things she said. I think what it was more conduct in office for me in a short space of time, you know. So there was, she didn't clear an article. You know, she said those kind of things like the homelessness was a lifestyle choice. You know, there was just a lot in a short space of time and, you know, criticising the police in public. Like I say, I think there are a hell of a lot of people that would look at the way that police approach events and think, well, why did that person get arrested and why did that person not? It was really interesting, actually. I mean, we spoke about the protests a lot in recent weeks, but just one quick point at the end of this is to see that British Transport Police, rather than the Met, police these protests at Waterloo. By gosh, they did not fuck about. Mate, I'm not going to lie. There is some joy in watching those Just Stop Oil people being dragged off by the elbows. Just ah! Look, I wake up on a Monday morning and that's what I want to see. That's the content. Yeah, if we look at politics and policing as content providers. (laughs) Okay, just a quick hype. I mean, I mentioned the 2024 tour dates on the breaking news episode the other day. So I'm just going to say like a a few reviews for the podcast would be nice. Five stars uh, if possible. Obviously, I'll read them out at some point. It just keeps it up higher and stuff like that. And the number of reviews when brilliant people like Constantine so can I be asked to go on this podcast they go oh look, he does have some listeners so please keep the reviews coming in reviews for the book as well the British bloke decoded uh, if you bought an Amazon or Waterstones or anything like that that would be handy and remember it's Christmas coming up there's such a high risk of you being bought a shit present don't let that happen all right so Constantine trigonometry recently 700,000 subscribers on YouTube that is immense mate yeah, it is. We're very happy. We started the year on under 300,000. We were running out of money rapidly, about to go bankrupt. We had to cut all our salaries. 
you know, we were having a lot of difficulties uh, this time last year, basically. And we've just exploded this year, which I always thought we would. Francis used to have uh, his ex-girlfriend, who I really liked, by the way. I always used to threaten him that if he doesn't marry her, I will. And uh, we've both let her down. Because neither of us married her. But she used to say everything that's bad for the world is good for trigonometry. And so we're kind of doomed to success at the moment is how things are going, basically. But yeah, very happy. Our America trips are making a big difference because we're able to, you know, we just interviewed Jay Leno and Russell Peters and Bill Maher. And all sorts of other amazing American guests that we've had on. So it's been going great. It's been going really well. We've got about 12 or 14 people working for us now and we've got really big ambitious plans for for the future so we always look at what's going on with us as just the beginning of something bigger when you said 12 or 14 people is that because two of them sort of identifies like half a person or something is that to do are you just doing hr there well this is going to sound even wankier i am no longer in charge of managing the staff so i just don't know how many of them there are off the top of my head oh you fucking you're just getting your big power dick out and slapping me in the face with it absolutely man have some of that just so the listeners know just get constantine on the podcast now i have to go through his people you see i text him and then i and then he's got a guy that comes in contact with me who's who's very good and very efficient but this is what happens once you've done like rogan twice and you're fucking knocking about do you know what i should stop being sarcastic because i'm I'm evidently lucky to have you back on the show So this is an interesting thing that you might or might not have come across over the weekend is that there was a trend that emerged on TikTok, which, by the way, is the fucking people give shit to Twitter. TikTok is the fucking Wild West, man. Like I've got a mate in advertising who said that Twitter is actually never been safer for advertisers in, in a way. But Elon Musk obviously said something that was deeply controversial and a lot of advertisers boycotted. All right. That's their choice. But why are you still on TikTok, man? Because the anti-Semitic stuff I've seen there is fucking insane. But anyway, that wasn't the point of this. The point is, is that on TikTok, the letter to America that Bin Laden sent in 2002, and it's very hard to think that and not think of the Proclaimers song. Do you know the one I'm talking about? When you go, will you send back a letter from America? It's genuinely a song. Are they Indian? (laughs) They're from Lahore, actually. So the, the the letter, I just looked on Wikipedia to sort of summarise the letter, and it it's basically a critique against the US. It portrays it as an, an imperial power hostile to the Muslim world, uh, which, fair enough, a lot of young people are going to sort of chime with that view. But then the letter then criticises the US for not adopting Sharia law. I'd hope that most young liberal Americans wouldn't want to adopt Sharia law. It condemns its economic practices like usury, like money lending. I would say the young people probably can't get by at the moment without some form of of loans. And it goes on to, you know, there's a mix of the political and the personal. And it sort of says that essentially American citizens are valid targets because they essentially by taxes and voting in these governments, they accept these permissive Western practices, which we all know what that means, right? In most cases, these permissive Western practices, I'm going to guess that he uh, probably means homosexuality on some level. But then you have this perverse situation where you get a lot of young right on American TikTokers and basically saying, well, you know what? Wait, guys, wait. Bin Laden had a point. And I just thought, given that you had a book out, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, Again, you know, you said everything that's bad for the world is good for trigonometry. You must have felt so fucking validated about your book when you saw this story break. 
I did, man. I wrote a Substack about it. But the basic point is, it's like, why are we surprised that a generation of kids who get their news and political opinions from three-second dances on a Chinese propaganda app don't quite <laughs> understand what's going on in the world? Like, it's not a surprise. I, I did feel very vindicated. I don't know if you remember, but the f- preface to the book is kind of a, it's a bit of a doomsday prediction about what happens if we continue down mm. the path that we're going. And I sadly feel extremely vindicated in what I've been saying. And this is what happens if you indoctrinate children for decades to believe that their country is bad, that everything about their history is evil, it is not a surprise that then they will look at enemy propaganda, which is Mm. what that is, and think that there's a lot of truth in it because it maps very neatly on what they've already been told at school. For And the stuff, like the more you look into it, we did a couple of episodes on trigonometry with people who've really done books about what is being actually taught in American schools. Britain is a little bit better, but still not great. But in America, they're being taught some really, really weird, contentious stuff from a very young age. And it's not a surprise that their minds are are essentially have been warped to receive foreign propaganda uncritically in this way. And this is another thing about Americans, you know, they're so nice. Like Americans Mm. are so nice. It's hard for them to imagine that other people are lying because they're like so earnest. Americans, one of the things that I really struggle with over in America, and I love going over, is they really don't get irony and sarcasm at all. Mm. They just don't. And that's because they're so earnest. They think that, why would someone say something they don't really mean? Or why would someone say something that's not really true? And I think that's also part of it. It's just like a generation of kids who've been trained to be nice. Well, they think Osama bin Laden was being nice when he wrote that letter. Hashtag be nice. Maybe he put that at the end of the letter. and Maybe that's why... They took it at face value. By the way, a little bit of trivia. Do you know that when they raided his house and took him out, they found a shit ton of porn mags in his house? So he obviously believed in in decency and morality, but but not for everyone. All of these guys. I mean, Jesus Christ, how many dictators? I mean, I I will hype another podcast here, Real Dictators. Listen to as many of those as you can, because so many of these anti-West guys, turns out they fucking love Julie Garland films, you know? It's so predictable. It's it's, It's like a similar principle to entertainment. If they stand up giving loads of speeches about feminism. If you go on a date with them, take a fucking chaperone. I felt that with this and your book on a much lower level, right? So you were kind of vindicated in your book on a kind of macro geopolitical level. My moment when I was vindicated with where did I go right was when Labour lost uh, Hartlepool. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you remember, I did trigonometry in May 2021 and it literally the book come out and, and you know, sometimes you just surf the wave of something. And everyone was going, fuck Labour, Labour shit. But what they didn't realise was the Tories were going to outshit them in the not too distant future. I think that it is really weird to a lot of people that there are so many occasions now where progressives are sort of seduced by an ideology that, that kind of hates them. And, and maybe some of them might say, you know, when you look at queers for Palestine, and it is difficult to say that, you know, it is a weird sort of name for an organisation particularly that that was a homophobic slur not that fucking long ago. And then you're putting it with, and I'm not saying everyone in Palestine is homophobic, but I'm saying that from what I've seen, (laughs) I'm not saying that. That is the best. I'm not saying everyone in Palestine. Mate, I'm pretty sure the overwhelming majority of people in Palestine do not share our Western liberal values of being pro-homosexuality. I'm willing to say that the Hamas-controlled government there aren't crazy about it, right? From what I've seen. 
based on what I've seen, but I'm sure there'll be a BBC journalist along to tell me differently soon. <laughs> um, and it is kind of strange because there is that point politically, isn't there? You know where they show like the far left eventually meets the far right. You also get this thing on the circle of progressivism where a uh, be nice right on woke person sort of eventually meets themselves coming back the other way. And that person is effectively tacitly endorsing some fairly barbaric stuff. Well, right. And your point about the far left and the far right. I mean, if you look at what's been happening in British politics for the last seven, eight years, everyone was a Nazi who didn't vote the way that people wanted. Well, now there's people on the streets going, kill the Jews. And they don't, they don't recognize that as being the Nazis of the modern day because they're they're like the oppressed group and they're on their team. They've just they've made words meaningless. And this was always the main reason I was annoyed with it. Well this co-opting of the word Zionist, I think is really fucking sinister, man. Essentially just means Jewish person now, doesn't yeah. it? I saw there was a clip of somebody outside um Keir Starmer's house they were saying his wife is a Zionist. I'm like, you literally, no one knows anything about Kirstam. I know that his wife is Jewish. She's been kept out of the limelight. So you're literally using the word Zionist in place of Jews. I mean, you think like, not only is it racist, but they're almost laying down a template for other racists. Like the far right could go to a seminar with them and exchange ideas and gone, we really like what you did there with using the word Zionist. We're trying to find words like that for the people that we fucking hate, but we don't want to get cancelled for. People could just as easily be gone with Sadiq Khan as as an Islamist. And some do, in fairness. And that's exactly the same argument. And you you see what's been happening over the weekend with people, we talked about it earlier, people harassing Labour MPs. It's like when you encourage people to think about politics as a tribal, ethnically, religiously based team game, this is what you end up with. And that's why you have people publishing these lists, Labour people publishing lists of Muslim MPs that didn't vote the right way in the vote Mm. because they're going, well, we elected you because you're Muslim. Now we expect you to do things that we think you should do because you're Muslim. And that's where identity politics takes you in the end is everyone's expected to vote with their skin color, with their religion. It's really, really dangerous. Yeah, I mean, that is... At some point, you do think if identity politics goes to its sort of logical conclusion is you don't really have Labour, Tory or Green. You just have the white blokes of a certain age party. <laughs> then you have the, the gender criticals uh, that formed a coalition. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. You know what? I'm taking the piss, but this is uh, sadly very fucking plausible. Okay, that is the end of this week's podcast. Uh, Constantine, thank you so much for coming on, mate. I, I know how busy you are. Every time I look at clips, you're sitting with fucking Bill Mayer, Joe Rogan, uh, Jay Leno. We got we got any exciting guests to look forward to coming up on Trigonometry? Loads, mate, loads. We have enough episodes recorded from our America trip plus some recent ones to last us until about the end of January. So we've got big names that you you know and love, but also we got an amazing historian called Barry Strauss to come in and talk about you know some of the interesting things about Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar and Hannibal, what made them great leaders, what also made them uh, susceptible to the things that ended up being their downfall. So we've got a really interesting mix of culture, war, politics, history, and all sorts of other interesting conversations. So lots and lots of really cool stuff to look forward to. And as things stand, I think we're doing a Christmas special. Me, you, Doyley, Andrew Doyle, and Francis doing a Christmas special coming up. You're going to be the most liberal one there at this point. 
Absolutely, and I also demand that it is like a Christmas special. So we've it's got to be like Morecambe and Wise. We've got to have we've got to wear like funny hats and stuff like that. You know me, I, I keep it light these days. I get scared. You guys talking serious stuff. I'll just see my legs start shaking and I'll just break out into a chorus of Silent Night just to break the tension. All right, man, we'll get you some hats. Don't worry about that. As long as there's hats. Listen, Constantine Kissing, thanks very much for being with us this week. Thanks for having me, mate. I'm going to say that very American thing that I've now taken on board. I'm going to say I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you too, bro. Next time. Next time, yeah? <laughs> Next time. <laughs>